I, I, I'm going to lose my eyesight if I don't stop watching porn. Mm-hmm. And I was given one last chance. Mm-hmm. What, what, I'm, what I'm doing is kind of reinforcing a belief that's going to get me back there. And frankly, for what I'm looking to escape from is much more painful than losing my eyesight. I don't know any other way to say it. The escape that an addict is looking to go to mm-hmm. is existential. Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hey, fellow brain pickers, and welcome to episode 149 of Can I Pick Your Brain? I am so pumped for you to listen to this episode. Ellie Nash has an incredible story that will have you holding on to every word and waiting in anticipation as he reveals how he lost over a million dollars because he didn't know how to say no, how he built up the courage to confront his sexual abuser after keeping it a secret for 15 years, how he went from being terrified to speak in front of just 10 people to captivating an entire audience and getting a standing ovation how he scaled his business to over 250 million dollars how he almost went blind and discovered his mind was tricking him and how he overcame his major addiction to porn and much much more so without further ado let's jump right into the show ellie welcome to the show Daniel, great to be here. Dude, man, I'm so pumped for this interview because, um, so first of all, for those, um, for those listening, Ellie's actually a client of mine. Um, so I'm helping Ellie get booked on, on other podcasts. When I heard your story, Ellie, it literally like it hit me to the core and I thought, oh my goodness, I need to get this guy's story out there. Like, it's just so inspiring. It's unbelievable. Um, so what I want to do, Ellie, I really want to go first back to sort of like your, um, your childhood, like what happened. Cause I know you've got a, a really crazy story to share, um, before you, you kind of got to where you are today. So tell us about that. Yeah. It's funny that you say that I have a, a crazy story because before I started sharing it, I, one of the things I told myself was I don't have a very interesting story. So it's, <laughs> it, it, from, oh my it's interesting that you start there. Wow. So was your question for me to kind of take you back to my childhood? And Yeah, I mean, tell us about, you know, tell us about your upbringing. I mean, just to give context, first of all, um, you know, today you've got over 100 employees working for you. Uh, you're doing over $250 million a year in revenue, right? Um, you've got clients like uh, like Target and Best Buy. Um, you've invested an early investment in, in Pinterest, if I'm not mistaken, and Lyft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but your backstory really has really built you to, to where you are. So I really want to get into the backstory because a lot of times, Ellie, you know, you hear about people's successes and you see on the outside, like everything looks amazing and like, wow, you know, he's doing $250 million a year and look at his clients and look how many people work, you know, like what a success story, but they don't know what's behind the curtains. Like they don't know what's happened behind the scenes for them to have got there. And the purpose of like, you know, me doing this show is to really pull back the curtains and for the average person to see like this is how they got to where they to where they got to right so the first thing i want to do is just go back to your um your origin story right so growing up um i know that you were a child of one of uh, nine children is that correct yes that's correct okay so yeah i'll take you back through my story and overcoming a lot of the stuff i did i mean a uh, very low self-esteem uh, tons of social anxiety, and a host of other um, challenges. So I grew up one of nine. I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in an uh, Orthodox Jewish community. The community mm-hmm. was um, either Orthodox Jews or African Americans, and the tension was pretty, pretty, pretty extreme. I would say that uh, you know, in, in the early 1990s, I was six, seven years old. There were race riots there, and I think that made a very, very strong impression on me just in terms of valuing safety. And it's Mm -hmm. something that became a search for me in many different ways. I was a third child. I had an older brother um, and an older sister. My mother is Moroccan. My dad is several generation American. So there was a lot of, there was tension outside the house. And even within the house, when you have different cultures collide in that type of way, Mm -hmm. it creates another kind of tension there as well. So I think a driving force for me has always been a kind of um, a drive for for safety in a lot of ways. Mm. 
and I'll, th- and I'll I'll talk about that. Sure. So, what um, you know, in the community that you were in? So, you're saying that it was a very tight knit community. Do you think you were kind of sheltered? Would you say? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. So, the community itself was very sheltered. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I, I think, there was a period of time where I thought that anyone who was non-Jewish was black. I didn't know that there were. Really, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, you didn't believe I, there I, were. Wait, you're telling me that you thought that every I, I white know, person was Jewish? Yes. What? I'm talking at a very young age because that's, wow. that's oh where I goodness. grew up. I grew up in that, in wow. that world. On, on the other hand, um, both my parents became observant close to the age of 30. So my relatives mm. and a lot of the other people I saw as I was getting older weren't in this world. So I did have mm-hmm. visibility into two kinds of worlds. I did always felt like friends, the odd one out. Did you have friends, that were, that, did you have friends that were black? Did I have friends that were black? Not until we got, not until I got a little bit older. As a kid, no. Uh-huh. As a kid with the tension there, not at all. Not at all. Right. There was almost no dialogue. As I got older, yes. Mm-hmm. So tell me about, um, like, what happened. There was a story that you share about uh, someone in your neighborhood that took advantage of you. Yeah. So you know, and it really connects in a lot of different ways. So there was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember at one point in time, I was coming home from the bus stop, and uh, it was a group of us, five or six, you know, all dropped off in the same bus and walking home, and there weren't very many Jewish families on the block that I lived on, and I was always advised, you know, walk together with this group. How old were you? And at this point in time, I was probably six or seven, and I was always Whoa, like, okay. walk with the group, don't walk alone. You got off the bus, wait for everyone to come off the bus, and, uh-huh. and walk home in a group. Okay. And I remember once as I was walking home... Um, someone yelled out, hey, they're the Jews, and a group of teenagers, and it's possible they were joking or not really serious, but they had baseball bats, and they chased after us with bats. And one of oh these kids God. lifted me up and ran home with me. And so this older guy, who was five or six years older than I was, was supposedly the safe kid in the neighborhood. And as I'll go on my story... Let me just, this, just to get clarity, so the person who picked you up and, and took you home... Was a Jewish he, kid. He was a Jewish kid, okay. And how old was he? He was probably about six years older than I was. So about 12. At the time, 12. about 12. Yeah, and 12, a couple okay. of years later, so in my mind, right, there was the safe and the unsafe, right? Uh-huh. So the, the Jews were safe and the blacks were unsafe. And I had, oh. to, I had, I had to stay with these, oh, right? I had okay. to stay with. So this kid ended up lifting me up and running home with me and ended up getting home. And it was, you know, we were, we were safe. But uh, he was the same kid who ended up sexually abusing me a couple years later. So this search for safety ended up playing itself out in a lot of ways. I almost feel like a lot of the trouble in my life that I got into later on, addictions and other things, were the same thing, the search for safety. When I was going in his house, I was looking for a safe place, was unsafe in my house, was unsafe on the streets. He was a safe kid who lifted me to safety and in the process sexually abused me. So there was a lot of... Um, oh my God, that's terrible. So what? how... So how old were you the first time that 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 he sexually abused you? So the, I was roughly eight, right? I was in the fourth grade, that's what I recall. Oh my god! Oh and, wow. Um, we had a. I, I was in his backyard. I don't want to right. be right. terribly okay. specific, but I was in his backyard, right. and oh there was a bar god. missing from his from his window. And right. he, he called me up at one point and said, like, oh, Ellie, I bet you can't climb up the bars and, you know, get through this, this, uh, this window. And I yeah, I want to show that I could. Right? I'm a big kid, I'm a strong kid, whatever it is. So I, I climbed up the bars, and at the top where there was a bar that was missing, there was an, a gap wide enough for me to fit through. And I climbed into his room, and I, I remember him locking the door. And one of the things when people go through these, these kind of experiences, it's amazing the details that get seared into the brain. I, mm-hmm. I literally remember the lock on his door, and I remember him locking it. It was one of those locks with, um, it kind of looked like fingers interlocking. And then when you mm-hmm. turned it, they went into the, like, mm-hmm. were two two or three different holes in there, and it kind of locked like that. So I remember him locking the door, and then he mounted me and started off as a wrestling match, and it very quickly became sexual. And that repeated itself many times after that. And were you able to tell anyone? Were you able to go home? Like, did you tell your parents about this? or No, I didn't, tell, you know, I didn't tell a single person. Nobody? Um, not even it. a friend? Like, not even a good no, friend? No, zero. Uh, barely even myself, to be, to be completely candid. 
No, I couldn't tell anyone about this. This was the most humiliating thing. It meant I was weak. Um, there were a lot of reasons I didn't tell, but it meant I was weak. There was an element of it that was extremely dirty, and I knew it. Um, I was terribly ashamed of it. But what I do joke now is I say that um, I didn't tell anybody, but I did tell the first person who asked. And the first person who asked, as I'll go into my story, was when I was 23 years old. And for business reasons, I started going to a therapist uh, within a short time of meeting me, he said, Ellie, were you sexually abused? So, wow. yeah, I didn't talk about so it. So, you're but telling it was the me till, till 20. So, for, from, so what, how old you were you at 12, you said, when it first started happened? Eight, started at Oh, eight, my goodness. Yeah. So eight. About 15 years, I kept it a so secret. 15 years, you didn't tell a soul. My God. No one. No wow. One. It's wow. One of my. One of my primary messages that I hold to the world is just the, the toxic nature of, of secrets. My goodness. And so, how did you end up in at therapy? Like, talk us through. So, so actually, no, before we go to the therapist office, you talked about addictions. Um, so, are we talking about drug, drug addictions? What kind so, of addictions were? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to how I got there. I, I, I do want to touch on a couple of, like, the in-between yeah. years. Sure, yeah, let's hear it. So, you know, what's interesting with, with this abuse are things that kind of compound on it. And as my story eventually progressed, my mom was actually the one who kind of helped me get closure. I eventually had a meeting with the guy who abused me, which is a really cool and healing and amazing experience to be able one to sit you, down and dialogue second, you with met, person. You met the guy, you, you, you actually sat down in a room with him and-, and uh, I had a three-hour uh, meeting with him, yeah. I had a three-hour meeting with him, and I'll get to that story. Wow. Very healing, just an amazing experience. And my mom was very instrumental in- and making that happen, which was really good for her own healing mm-hmm. because she had a lot of shame around allowing this, allowing this, quote unquote, to happen to me, but also her not knowing, me not feeling comfortable right. enough to tell her. Wow. But one of the things, and I like to say this just kind of to, to illustrate the, the kind of pain that ends up um, from this abuse. There are so many facets to it. So people who do this are often not like kind of creepy and then they, you know, it's like, oh, I kind of knew he was that kind of guy. Quite the contrary. Um, of all the people, I, I, I don't remember my mom ever saying this to me about anyone else, but she did say this about the person who abused me. She said, why can't you be more like him? And this was several years after the abuse. It was after it stopped, but it was just to say, why can't you be more like him? He was such a good kid, and he was so helpful to everyone. And, oh, my goodness you know, me. So outgoing. So it's, uh, to me, I, I say that for two reasons. Number one, to illustrate how um, undetectable these things often are. On the one, It wasn't someone who oh yeah, kind of makes sense after the fact, just the opposite, mm-hmm. very surprised. And the second is just the, the way the pain manifests itself in different areas, right? I mean, when I talk about the abuse, that was one pain, but when I talk about hearing that comment, that was like almost 10 times worse than the abuse because the abuse was done by, yeah. my, you know, by, by, by a family friend yeah. who I can write off. But when my mom says something that caused me pain, I know unintentional and there's absolutely mm-hmm. zero anger, resentment or anything associated with it. I just want to kind of share what that pain is like and to hear that, why can't you be more like this kid? And for that secret just to get wedged in just a little bit deeper. Wow. What's incredible is that you, you held on to something that was so painful for so long. And, and today, I mean, you are, you're, you're able to get on stages and, and speak about it openly, which is, I mean, it's incredible how you were able to get the courage to do that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this who, um, you know, may- maybe they don't have uh, an extreme uh, situation like you were in, but we've all got something that we, you know, desperately want to share. And it's, you know, we, I guess it's the reason why we can't get up and share it is because we're just, we're ashamed or we're uh, afraid, right? We're just so scared to get up on stage. I mean, they, yeah. you know, they say that the, you know, the second uh, biggest fear is dying, and the first is getting on stage speaking, right? Um, and I guess we'll get into we'll get into that um, a little bit this later is on. Some, yeah, this is something else also because this is talking about that specific experience. So there is a, um, I, I love the line: "The only way out is through." Right? The only way out of a painful experience is to now revisit the painful experience and to really go through it. So it's not as if it went from walking into a therapist's office, talking about it, and mm-hmm. yeah, I'm okay. And now mm-hmm. I get up on a stage. No, right. there was a very, very painful process to get to that stage. It was, a f- it was five years from um, when I originally confronted this guy, and I confronted him over the phone at the uh, suggestion of my therapist, 
Wow. And it was five years till I got that meeting. The amount of losses I felt I took in those five years were extremely painful, like trying to get this guy to a meeting. But eventually when I got it, I, I want to be clear, there are many people who were abused. I don't share my story because I was abused. I share my story because I feel like I was one of the, f- um, one of the few who was lucky enough to sit down with their abuser and offer him a path back to redemption. And I feel like he's there. He's like, I, there's no anger. There's no resentment. There's no victimization. There's nothing. You there's, don't feel any anger towards this guy? I, I feel a little bit of pity for him that he has this memory that he abused me. You and pity how- him. Hold on a second. What do you mean? You pity, you pity him. At this stage, yes. At this stage. It wasn't always the case, and I, wow. I think it's a process. I don't pity all abusers. I don't want to say that. What I'm saying in this, in my particular story, I've completely come to terms with the pain that I've gone through, and I know that now he has his own journey. When we sat down in that meeting, I offered him a path back to redemption. He took that path. Some people never take that path. But I do feel like that path, to some degree, has to be offered, and it's one of the reasons why I, one of the reasons why I share my story. To be clear, we, you know, not all abusers fit in the same box. Mm-hmm. The person who abused me abused me as a teenager. When I sat down with him and he went through a lie detector test and he took psychological evaluations all at my request, there was one other person who he abused at the same time and he approached him. He wasn't someone with hundreds of victims. He wasn't someone who used positions of power. He didn't do it as an adult. Right. So th- right. it's th- so there a lot are of factors. Right. I- I'm just that. talking about my story and I believe mm-hmm. that because. I was given a gift by being able to heal from this, this way, something that I never thought was possible. I share for that reason. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I want to talk about how you actually ended up getting that meeting. But before we do, um, talk to us about, you know, you're in, you're in business, right? You're, you're an extremely successful businessman. Um, how did you get started in that? And how did you deal with, with, I guess, building a business with this burden on your back the whole time? I'll answer the second part of the question is I would not have built the business to where I did without getting this burden off my back. Um, there was a wow. point of time where it helped, you know, I believe strongly in the, uh, the process of compassionate inquiry. You know, your joke, you mentioned about addiction. So there's different addictions that I deal with, but um, certainly one of the habits that I wanted to get rid of was uh, watching porn as often as I did. And I mm-hmm. use it as an escape mechanism. And, you know, one of the beliefs, I, I remember this so clearly, I woke up one morning and my contacts were bothering me. I took them out and I tried getting them back in and I couldn't get it back in. My eye was so irritated. So I, I couldn't find my glasses. I went to lens crafters and while they were measuring me for glasses, they said, I see something in your eye. You must go to a doctor immediately. So oh, I immediately man. booked an, a, an appointment and the doctor said, I have a corneal ulcer. And he said, the ulcer could or can't respond to antibiotics. We don't know. Um, and therefore, I need you to make an appointment every day for the next 10 days to see how it responds. And if it doesn't work, it could cause blindness. Oh my God, so, that's so scary. In my mind, right, in my mind, I was so convinced that I was going blind because oh. I watched too much porn. Are you serious? Was that a religious belief? Yeah, this was my belief? punishment. I, I, it's possible it was a religious thing. It just, I was so convinced that this is the reason and I promised on everything I know that if I get my eyesight back, I will stop watching porn. Wow. Uh, Sure enough, within two or three days, the antibiotics kicked in and everything was fine. I didn't even have to go to the doctor for the full 10 appointments. If you had to guess, how long do you think I stayed away from porn? About two days. <laughs> right. Not, not even a week, right? right. So, and that yeah. wasn't a thought. I want to say that wasn't like – that was a fact in my mind. I am wow. losing my eyesight because of porn. God saved me because of the promise I made not to watch it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Fast forward, when I eventually kicked the habit – I incorporated a very different belief. And the belief that I incorporated was porn likely saved my life. When I was 13, 14, 15, 16, and I had somewhere to escape in, a safe place to retreat into in a world that felt so unsafe, that possibly kept me alive and was the very best thing I could have done for that period of time. But today, I no longer need that safety hatch. I no longer need to go there. It's no longer useful to me. And the reason I bring these up is I started this with kind of the concept of compassionate inquiry and looking at things in ways of what's useful at, period, at a period of time and what's no longer useful. What was once useful to me was escaping into porn today is no longer useful to me. And that's a, a belief that I found that's able to, um, in terms makes, of creating cha- changes make, in my life, I found it as a much healthier belief. Not healthier, sound, I don't use the word healthier, more effective. 
you make it sound so simple. I mean, addictions are really, really difficult. I mean, the, you know, AA, NA, SA, all these programs, you know, the, the success rate is so, it's so small. The percentage rate of success is so, so small. And uh, I mean, you just, it's just a change of belief. Like one day you woke up and you're like, oh, you know, it's not good for me. I, I shouldn't be watching porn. Like what, what ha talk about that journey for a minute. So what do you do with that question, right? So when I ask myself the question, when I say I'd rather lose, I, I, I'm going to lose my eyesight if I don't stop watching porn, mm -hmm. and I was given one last chance, mm -hmm. what, what, I'm, what I'm doing is kind of reinforcing a belief that's going to get me back there, and frankly, for what I'm looking to escape from is much more painful than losing my eyesight. I don't know any other way to say it. The escape that an addict is looking to go to mm -hmm. is existential. Right? Comparing what an addict does like someone says, like an addict is destroying themselves. That's like saying someone who's trapped under a rock cuts off their limb and is destroying themselves. No, they're saving themselves. Right. They're they're like imagine someone in the ocean and the rock is, and they're basically they're drowning. And if they don't cut off their their, their ankle to to get free, then they'll drown to death. Right. You're saying that that's how it Correct. feels. Wow. What Correct. a description. So, wow. So that 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 to me is what um, when someone is is an addict, what they're doing is they're saving themselves. So now. When I go, when I take a completely different so track, so you felt that when I you were say, watching porn, you were you were saving yourself from, I guess, from the burden that you were keeping inside. I'm saying that, would, that I'm saying that in hindsight. I'm saying that there was right. a pain that I was in, a very painful place of pain that I was in, and I needed to escape that pain. And that pain felt so real. It felt so real. I mean. You, and any addict, uh, Gabor Mate, if someone's looking to deal with addiction, reading some of his work in the realm of hungry ghosts. Um, What's his Gabor name? Gabor Mate is amazing. Gabor Mate. Gabor? How, how do you spell that? Gabor? G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E. And he has a wonderful, wonderful book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he says, instead of asking why the addiction, ask why the pain well, why the pain? Why the pain? What is the pain that the addict is escaping from? So back to you know where this started was you asking me. Oh, it's just simple. You change one belief. It's yeah. not simple. You change one belief. That belief takes you on a much different journey. So mm -hmm. for example, the 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 first belief of it's going to it's it, I'm going to lose my eyesight takes me down a journey of beating myself up. And all I want to do anyway is avoid this pain. And at some point in time, it's not a logical decision, but the pain is. The pain in the moment is more important to escape than the future pain of blindness, as real as that feels. Mm. However, when I say this is no longer useful to me, potentially, and it probably once was, first of all, I remove some of the shame associated with the addiction, and the shame is one of the things that keep us in. And then mm. once I say that is this is no longer useful to me, then I have to ask myself, how so? Why is it no longer useful to me? What is it that I have now at the age of 24, 25, 26, and as I get older into my 30s, what is it that I have now? What resource did I have that I simply did not have then? Now I can choose my environment. Now I can create something safe. Now I can surround myself people, surround myself with people who make me feel safe, and I don't need to escape in other ways. Now I can talk to people, and I don't have to worry what the lashback, what, you know, what the pushback may be, and, and mm -hmm. on and on. I'm an adult today, so asking that question isn't Oh, you ask this question, and then you know I, I I go to meetings multiple times a week, and I'm still very much involved in the process of keeping myself sober. What mm -hmm. I will say is that that question is a much better starting point. That belief is a much better starting point. And for anyone mm -hmm. who wants to research it, compassionate inquiry is uh, is what it's called. And just instead of asking myself why why do I do this, asking myself for what reason am I doing this. And it's such it's, 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 inquiry. Wow. Very powerful. So all this kind of, I mean, this kind of came about, how old were you when you, when you went to the therapist? So it was, I was 23 um, and it connects okay. very strongly to business. So, you know, I mentioned that in my home, there wasn't, there was a lot of discord. Yeah. Um, my dad was a government employee. My mom was a teacher, part-time teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, I was one of nine kids. There was wow. very little money um, in the house. And a lot of the disagreement that I heard was around money. How are we going to pay the housekeeper? Mm -hmm. How are we going to pay this bill? You know, what if this happens? How are we going to pay for the school? Right. And so you had a lot of fear I, of around money as well. So to me, I said, hey, if I could, if I can get rid of this fear, not risk fear, if I can get rid of this, these money problems, I can solve my own problems. I can solve my parents' problems. Like uh -huh. this, is, this is my ticket out. 
So I started my business at a young age. I started at 19, and I have a, a brother who has done very well in business who's a couple years older than I am, and he started and started building up his own business. And I saw this and said, hey, I, this is my ticket out. I'm going to make money. What happened was is that I had an inability to turn people down when they made requests for me. The word no um, – I like to joke that yes is a short yes yes is a shorter word than no because always <laughs> when we say yes we don't have to say why we're saying yes yes yeah, yeah you know yeah. stay in my house for three months yes <laughs> you can borrow fifty thousand dollars yes what? Right, wait is no that's that... <laughs> so funny oh my goodness man. wow and but so why no do you think that was why why do you think it was that you just were saying yes to to everyone to anyone that was asking you for things. I, I think a psychologist will have to explain this, but what I will say is this, is that when I walked into the therapist's office and I described this and I told him, I, I want to be clear. I said, why are you here? And I said, I'm here because I cannot tell people no. They come to me, they ask me questions, and I said, I just want to, I, I said, I want to be clear on this. This is not my brain. It's not that I'm, I'm, I'm making bad decisions. It's not my brain that can't make bad decisions. It's my hands making bad decisions. So he says, what do you mean? How do you know? I said, because I want to say no. Like my brain wants to say no. My mouth just doesn't say it. My hands write the check. Oh my so, goodness. With, so as we're going, he said, Ellie, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, as a child, were you sexually abused? And I was floored by this question. I was like, how did, how did you know? Like, was I wearing a t-shirt that said this? Like, how did you know? <laughs> right. What's the connection, right? I, like this, I, I've been telling no one forever. This was like, right. this was the secret. And within right. 15 minutes... You're asking me this question, and I, I, did, I did not stop, stop peppering him. I was like, do you ask this to every patient? When's the last patient you asked? Mm-hmm. You know, just driving him crazy. And he said, Ellie, no, this is a pattern. People who go through abuse manifest in different ways, and this is one of the ways I see it manifested over and over. And finally, when he convinced me of that, I knew that the abuse is something that I have to address. One of the no. most important lessons. I, I, wanna, I don't want to miss it. So I know yeah. you're about to ask a question, but I, I don't want to miss go it. Ahead, please. I mentioned there was a five-year process. One of the most important lessons that I learned at the beginning of this therapy is that winning is fighting. Winning is not winning. And that reframe in my mind where he said, Ellie, you just have to keep fighting against this guy who hurt you. And every single day you stay in the fight, you're winning. When you give up, is when you've lost. You don't have to get him to a certain place to win. And I just love that. I love that for business mm-hmm. and I love that for all sorts of, I focus on the process, someone else focuses on the outcome. I never measure myself from the outcome. And if I can stay in that, not that I never do it, but if I can stay in that process of never doing it, it's a hell of a lot better. And that was one of the things he taught me and that's how I was able to kind of stay in the game for five years. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my ups and downs was because of that, one of the first suggestions he gave me, at least staying in the fight is winning. Wow. You don't have to win the fight. You just have to stay in the ring. Just stay Every in the ring. Every day you've won. You can go to sleep at night and saying, did I do something today? I love that. Did I do something today to push this forward? And if I can say that, and if I, the answer is no, then will I do it tomorrow? Then that's all. You're, you're winning. You're winning because you're staying in the fight. Wow. I love that. So at that point, when you went to see this psychologist or psychiatrist, um, were you already... Uh, did you already have a business? Were you already successful, I was, yeah. quote unquote, on that point? I, like, I I was doing very well for a twenty-three-year-old. What were you involved? What was the business that you that you were running? I had a self I had a cell phone distribution business. Um, I was making a fair amount of money. I don't remember the exact at that time, but mm-hmm. I was doing I was doing well for a twenty-three-year-old, and I. Um, yeah, I always wanted to help charities and always giving money to charities. So I got a little reputation as someone who you can reach out to for help. And a lot of the help that I've given, I'm very proud of and was done, you know, motivated by me. And a lot of the help that I gave people was completely not motivated by me. I also think that there's a, um, you know, kind of energies that people put out into the world. When someone yeah. gets into the right mindset, oh, oh, suddenly they meet the partner, they're, they're, they're the person who becomes their partner. Yeah. And I think that um, I, I was attracting a certain kind of person into my life. I was giving off a certain energy where there was vampires just knew you mm. can come to me. and. Uh, Interesting. In a business? Are you talking about in a business sense as well? Like you were attracting- Some in a business. Some, some in a business, and a lot of it was not directly related to business. It wasn't a customer, mm. but it would be someone who heard my name and reached out and, Ellie, would you invest in this thing? And I knew the investment was a disaster. Ellie, would you loan me money for and this you thing? you invested in things even though you knew it was going to fail. Hundred percent, yeah, out of total oh my guilt. Goodness. 
Seriously, you just put in money. How much money were you making? You must have been making pretty, pretty substantial amount of money to be able to just throw money into stuff. Without yeah, even. I mean, at that at that point in time, I remember when those numbers were the numbers were smaller than they eventually became. It wasn't like I walked into the therapist's office, and um, <laughs> and it was cured in one day. It became mm-hmm. a, a process, and in many ways, it still is a it's, it still is an ongoing struggle. Mm-hmm. But not inviting anyone to call me, but I've got <laughs> much better. I've got right. much better at it. But at those, tw- I remember when I walked into the therapist's office, the numbers then were, there was a $15,000 guy, a $50,000 guy, a 25000 Okay, The so numbers right. were in that range. Eventually, it got up to numbers well beyond that. Right. And how many people? $750,000. $750,000 that you yeah, put that in? Yeah, that I sunk into something out of, out of complete guilt. Out of complete guilt. I and never you lost thought this it. investment going What? And you lost that money? 100% of it. Zero. I have nothing left what? to show for it. And it was completely... It's almost a million dollars you just blew just because you felt guilty. Oh, my God. Motivated by guilt, yeah. Absolutely motivated by guilt. And this is... I'm giving... I gave you a few examples. So it's well over a million that I've lost because of this. There's no question about it. The... Um, that's what it is, right? When there's a, when there, when there's a problem, it doesn't... Um, well, you understand why I walked into a therapist's office, right? When, I, when I'm looking at my numbers and I'm making what I'm making and it's coming... It's... it's it's going out the back door as fast as I'm bringing it in. So it's just totally silly things. Wow. Um, you know, someone comes to us, can I get a, uh, a $20,000 loan for something? Mm-hmm. And there's just, you can see in their life that there's zero possibility they pay you back. So today, the way I look at it is, is am I willing to give this person this money? And so if I'm charity. willing to give it, I'll give it. I'll never loan it. Right. I'll, I'll never loan it. There's a different situation. If someone's running a business and then they, they need a loan for a short period mm-hmm. of time and it makes sense with the story, then 100% I'll, I'll loan someone and those get repaid. But if someone's out of a job and they're asking me for a $20,000 loan, there's very little reason to believe that they'll be able to pay this back to me. And I knew that, but I said yes anyway. And then oh, as I saw this happening and I saw this utter inability to say, I, I, don't, I don't know how to sp- – you know, it's, it's funny that there are fears around speaking, you spoke mm. about earlier about the fear of public speaking. There's fears around speaking. There's fears around saying the word no. It's it's unbelievable, and we don't say it. Mm. We freeze, and that's what happened to me. I froze when it came to saying saying no to someone. How many people were working for you at that time? So when you just before you were going into the therapist uh, office at this point in your life, you, you're 23 years old. You're clearly really successful i mean financially from a business perspective um you know you've got this successful company how many people are working for you at that point roughly about 10 or 15 at the stage and what was that like i mean we was how was your relationship with your with the people working for you um because if you couldn't say no to people for loans i can imagine that probably also uh you know wasn't so great uh from a, an employee employer standpoint as well no, there was an inability to, to communicate there too. Someone say, you know, Ellie, can I take off a couple of weeks? Right. And yeah, like, the yeah, answer sure. was yes. The answer was always yes. What right did I have to? <laughs> what what right did I have to say otherwise? I would. I'll tell you even better. Um, right. You know, I, I sat in a therapist's office for a few hours, and um, I hope that my former business partner, if he hears me talking about this, is not insulted in any way. He's a great guy, and we're still friends today. But one day he turned to me and he said, Ellie, you're talking to me about all these people who have taken advantage of you. And you brought up on the side that your business partner basically checked out of the business. He doesn't work anymore. And he's still your partner, right? And he still takes a salary. And I said, yeah. He said, why do you do that? Wait, I what, said, do you, what do you mean he takes a salary? Your business he partner? Takes a, I had a business partner and he had checked out of the business after a few years. Okay. What do you mean checked he was out? Take, you mean he sold? Out. You, no, you he sold, checked out. I don't know what that out. means. I don't what, the, what does that mean? He wasn't, checked. he wasn't showing up for work. He just didn't show up and you just kept paying his salary? Kept paying his salary, kept paying... And he still um, owned 50% of the business? Still owned 50% of the business. And the therapist turned to me one day and said, My goodness, Ellie, Ellie what are you going to do about this? And I said, why? I said, my, my, my job is to bring 100% to the business. I said there was a period of time in the first year where I needed some time off because I was working on some schooling and he gave me some time off. So he's like, yeah, but that was agreed to. This wasn't agreed to. And that hit me like a thunderbolt. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this wasn't agreed to. What's going on? So I remember when I made the decision that I, I need to confront my business partner and say this partnership isn't working for me. And what's interesting about these things is that even if they're not consciously bothering, there's something that just 
eats away, eats away at um, me. At, at me. And there's a reason I'm bringing this up. My, my partner is a great guy, and my former business partner, great guy, and runs a successful business today. But at that stage in the game, I mean, he he was fine not working, and I was fine. I didn't say anything differently. But eventually, when I sat down with him. And when I made the decision that I was going to sit down with him, it took me a couple of months to prepare myself for that conversation. And I thought, I was going, Ellie, did you have the conversation yet? I said, no, when are you going to have it? This week. And next <laughs> week I'd come back, did you have it? I, was like, no, so I made some offhanded remark to him, but I didn't, I, I didn't sit down with him and let him know that this isn't working for me. And it mm-hmm. took a very, very long time to have that conversation. And when it did, it hit him like a thunderbolt. And he's like, Ellie, like, yeah, why no, didn't you crazy. say anything? crazy i remember growing up where my dad had this store and he had people working for him and there was this one person who everybody in the community knew he was stealing from my dad everybody knew his hands <laughs> his hands were in his when it's in the cashier every day like it was it was it was so open i mean it was like a joke and every day we would tell my dad like so when are you going to approach this guy when are you going to fire him when are you going to tell him and every single day, my dad would be like, oh, yeah, you know, no, I, you know, he, he's, you know, I feel bad for him. I feel bad for him. He had so much pity for this guy that he couldn't fire the person who was literally stealing money from his own. It just didn't make sense to me, right? But now I'm like, as an adult, I, I, I understand, <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I see it from a different place, um, but it's a weakness. You think it's a strength in a way. It's coming from a good place. Um, well, hmm. now I'm saying this. As, it's not as coming from a good place. It's not coming it's from a good place. It's not coming from right. No, I had to take that back because I realize it's not. No. No, it, it may wow. seem to be coming from a good place. It seems to come from a good place, but it isn't. It's coming it, from no, an unhealthy place. It's a very it's unhealthy a, it's ex- place. Right. It's, a very, it's an extremely unhealthy place. A psychologist or someone who's done a lot of mm-hmm. experimental psychology maybe can explain why it's there. But one thing I will say that if you heard your dad's story it would make sense to you. Mm, that's another subject we're not going to get into <laughs> for right now. Um, right, perhaps know your dad's story. Correct. Right. So tell me, so tell me about um, how you, so you're sitting in the therapy therapist's office and she, and he turns around and, and asks you about this abuser or this sexual abuse. Um, do you open up straight away or you just kind of, so you open, you opened up. Let's just actually, let's just get said- to the, I said right away that I was abused. He asked me details, and it took me a while to open up about all the details, and mm-hmm. I was kind of embarrassed about different things related to it. It took me a while to open up completely, and some memories took a little bit of time to come back also. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, as I started talking about it, oh, this was another time, and this was another time, and that was another time. So it just, I, I kept remembering different things. And then you went on a, a, a confrontation hunt, right? You hunted down your abuser. And you said you spent five years trying to get him into a room. Is that right? Yes. So I'll, I'll give you a few, a few parts of that. The very first thing I did, I got his cell phone number. And when I asked for a cell phone number, no one knew why I was asking for it. And like I said, he was a family friend. So it was a couple steps removed to get a cell phone number. And I called him up and I said my name. And I said, you know, hey, this is uh, Ellie Nash. And I said, I'm sure you know why I'm calling. Oh, and there was, silence on the, uh, there was silence on the other line. I was so nervous about making this call. I can't tell you. So nervous. I I still remember where I was when I made this call. Mm -hmm. And I'm pacing back and forth between my bedroom and my bathroom (laughs) in uh, this apartment in Miami. And I I say to him, I'm sure you know why I'm making this call, why I'm I'm reaching out to you. And there was silence on the line. And I said, do you remember what you did to me as a kid? And silence. And he said, "I, I vaguely remember some wrestling matches so i said okay I, I vaguely remember a little bit more i need a few things from you i said number one i want you so i, I said i need a few things from you he said ellie whatever you need he was a little bit nervous on the call i said ellie whatever you need i'll do so i said what i need from you is one i want you to pay for one session of therapy just to acknowledge that i'm dealing with this because of you i'm not asking you for all my therapy uh, I'm, I was sure he didn't have the money for it. I asked you for all my therapy, and it was fairly expensive. It ended up being well over six figures. Sure. I'm not asking for all of it, um, but I, I'm asking for that. Number two, I said, I want to know if you did this to anyone else. And he acknowledged on the call that there was one other person, or one other person, only one time, something like that. I said, I want, um, I said, I'd like you to take a lie detector test to that effect. Sure. And 
Um, the third is I'd like you to have a meeting with me and my therapist. I want to, I want to talk to you. So he, he said, no problem. Ellie, whatever you want. So I said, great. I'm going to have um, the office, the therapist, reach out to you and set up an appointment for everything, for the lie detector test, for you to come down here and for you to make payment to them. Mm-hmm. And the next day, my therapist actually got on the phone with him, had a discussion. He agreed to come down. He acknowledged to the therapist on the phone what had happened. He minimized the severity and he minimized the frequency, but he acknowledged that there was something there. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll, I'll set a time to come down and uh, this will be done, right? So it sounds like this is going to be a week ordeal. Well, <laughs> what happened was after that, a, uh, he started mentioning it to other family members. And someone said, no, you have to go to an attorney. And the attorney has to this and the attorney has to that. Mm. And obviously, you know, attorneys are not moral counselors. Attorneys are worried about protecting their clients. Mm-hmm. And the attorney advised him not to, not to do anything. Mm. As it happens... Um, this was in New York State. In New York State, there's a statute of limitations, and there's recently, for anyone following the laws in New York, there's recently some, been some, a law that was passed that allows for an extension to this and change it up. But at the time, someone had only five years past their 18th birthday if they wanted to bring anything related to abuse that happened as a child. Mm-hmm. So I was already 23, so I had zero recourse, not civilly and not criminally. So there was nothing I could do. Um, so... I'm not sure what the lawyer was protecting against, but mm-hmm. that was the advice he got, and he went underground. And over the next few years, I'll share a couple different details, but over the next few years, uh, like one of the things I did is I got his home address. And I got his home address from a New, York, um, a New York City police detective who was sensitive to my story and who I had met. And she said, I'll, nothing can happen with this. I'll give you his name and address, but promise me you won't do anything if you're just looking to talk to him. You can go. So I went to his house and I waited outside. It was freezing cold and I waited outside to meet with him. And I share my story. There's a video online where I share more details of the story. And I said to him um, that I really need – oh, what, what happened was when he finally pulled up, he was with his wife and kids. Mm-hmm. And he rolled down, he rolls down his window. And I thought, what am oh I going to say? He abused me as a kid in front of his – so he rolls down the window. I'm silent for a few seconds. And I said to him, I said, dude, you owe me money, which was true. <laughs> Which is right. true. He owed me right. for the therapy session. And he said, Ellie, I have nothing to talk to you about. Oh, man. So I, I said, you owe me money. And he said, I have, not, I have nothing to talk to you about. I'm closing my window. I said, listen, I said, in the real world, when people have disputes, they sit down with a third party. Mm. Let's sit down with a third party and, and, and work out this dispute. I think you owe me money. You think you don't even have to talk to me. Let's work this out. And it wasn't like this. It was an emotionally charged conversation. I'm repeating it without as much emotion, but I, I was shaking, and I, was, I don't know if it was from the cold or from, or from the, uh, the interaction, but it was a very uncomfortable conversation. Eventually, I got nowhere mm-hmm. um, with it. He refused to talk to me, and, and that was that. So there were a number of different iterations to this. He was a volunteer paramedic, and I ended up getting him suspended for a week from paramedic, but they were really just worried about covering their own ass. So they went to a therapist who signed off. This is a great story. So the therapist signs off and gives him a bill of health that he's okay. I've tested him, I've evaluated him, and he's fine, which is ridiculous. But since that, so I, I got the therapist's number. I called him. He wouldn't answer my phone. And I said, if you're giving out a bill of health, like clean bill of health, give it to him. Like, can I get one too? <laughs> like, I want to be healthy. Like, <laughs> give, me, give me one also. The guy never responded to me. I was right. fine. Eventually, um, my mom got involved with an organization that would publicly expose um, uh, people who abuse children. And she set up a meeting with the head of that organization who eventually reached out to him. And for fear of public exposure, he ended up sitting down with me. And I, I want to talk a little bit about this meeting because of, because of what happened. Mm-hmm. In there. So today I'm probably about six feet or so. If you ask my wife, six two, but about six feet. Yeah. And you always look bigger to your wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, a couple hundred pounds, and I've I've worked out a lot, and things like that. And this guy's a little a little man, mm. under 150 pounds. And when I walked into that meeting the first time with him, I swear, if you would have asked me, he was larger than I was. There was just this power dynamic. I was still in wow. the eight year old brain, where this guy was this <laughs> large. Crazy. It's crazy. It's like the elephant, like the analogy where the elephant is so big and you've got this little guy like bossing the elephant around, you know, it's like the elephant can crush him like that. And wow, mindset. It's all about the, like, it's incredibly powerful. Wow. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. Right. The way the mind plays tricks on us. I mean, that's what it was. This guy was this big, powerful guy. And 
I asked this question that I've heard pretty much every single person who's been abused ask this question first. If they ever get this interaction, you know the question will be? The very first question someone wants to know from mm-hmm. an abuser? Think, if why? someone hurt you, what would you say? Why? Why, why me? me? Yeah. Why yeah. me? That's what I said. So I, I said, why me? I said, of all the little boys on the block, why did you choose me to abuse? That was my question. And... It took a while to break through to him. He had minimized it a little bit, that it wasn't sexual in nature. And it wasn't until I really pushed it and said, listen, I remember your erection. I remember your orgasm. I remember more than once. Like, let's, let's be specific. This wasn't a wrestling match where you inappropriately flicked me in the balls. This was full-on abuse. And you used me to get to orgasm. And let's just be very, very clear about what happened. And I don't know if it was the, the intensity of the way I was coming after him or if really he blocked out certain aspects of it in his mind. The guy literally imploded. And it was like he sunk into the couch, started shaking violently, turned to the therapist and said, am I a monster? He can barely talk. He was hyperventilating. He turned to the therapist and he said, am I a monster? Can I go back home to my kids? And oh when I God. saw this different side of this person... It just, there was something inside me that kind of melted. And it was like, this guy is not this big, powerful person who took advantage of me. This guy is a hurt person who hurt me. And he has a much worse memory on his hands than I do today. I have the memory of being abused. He has the memory of abusing. And he has to figure out how to fit that memory into his own identity. And that's much tougher than, than, than my journey. That's much tougher than my journey. And um. It got so bad with him that I, I excused myself from the office and I told the therapist, I said, you know, take care of this guy. Right? So it's like, on my dime, on my dime, he's treating this mother effort. No, kidding. Wow. On my dime, he's treating this guy. So anyway, he sat with him about 20 minutes before he called me back in. And when he eventually called me back in, he had composed himself a little bit. And the guy says to me, he's like, Ellie, I, listen, I don't have the money, but tell me. Can I, can I give you anything more? I didn't realize the way this impacted you. Can I give you anything more? Can I pay for more therapy, a, a payment plan or something? And I sat there for a while, and I told him, I told him no. I told him no. I said, it's okay. It's okay. You, you got your journey. No. You said the word no, Ali. You did You're right. It. I said the word no in a different context. No. Right, right. I told him no. I told him no. I said, I'm Okay. And it just felt so good like to be in that position, like it kind of like righted the wrong in that moment. Like here he was asking me for something. Mm-hmm. The power you know, kind of shifted. I said no. And I, I share my story mostly because of this interaction because I, I speak to so many people who, are, who never experience this. Sometimes their abuser has passed and they never get this opportunity. And just to kind of share like, hey, it's possible to kind of shift someone. And I don't know if it takes these kind of meetings. I don't know if it can happen in a different way. I don't know what would have happened in a lot of other situations, but I will say this. You know, I, I strongly believe that of there are different kinds of abuse and of all the kinds of abuse that are the worst, there's incest. And incest is because no one is safe. And I, I met a guy once in the rooms of recovery or addiction who was raped by his father. And this was before I fully resolved my issue. And he sat there talking about his story and he said, today my father is dead. And I've completely forgiven my father. I love my father. Wow. And it was so inspiring to me that someone could go through that and get to a level of healing that I said to myself, I could too. My father didn't abuse me. This was a family friend. Mm-hmm. He was a teenager. I can, I can get there. And then there was a process of getting there, but it was just so powerful to me that someone could forgive their own father for raping them. Wow. And I mean... It's, 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 I'm speechless, which is very rare. Um, Some of the people, reasons I bring this up, because yeah, I, I yeah. know we want to connect it a little bit to business, is well, that I had, I say, never, yeah. had I never resolved this, right, this inability to, to say no, I wasn't able, my, my business took like a, a major turn as soon as I bought my partner out. And I, in hindsight, I know why. And it's that mm-hmm. my partner was weighing me down in the way that I, I felt cheated. I felt taken advantage of, but I didn't feel it clearly enough to articulate it. So it just was this feeling like I didn't want to grow the business too much while he was taking 50% of what I was doing when he wasn't really around. Mm-hmm. So it was weighing me down, and it wasn't until I was a- actually able to get in touch with the feelings I was feeling and then understanding how I felt 
um, not appreciated in the relationship and that it wasn't okay for me and that I didn't feel this was equitable. And then I eventually confronted him on it and bought him out that then I felt free from that weight and I was able to grow the business. And the same with being able to communicate to my employees today and to be able to, what I did was when I got super frustrated in the past, I would fire off these long, angry emails of my employees. <laughs> and it became oh this joke in the office when people got like one of those three in the morning nasty emails from me. Hmm. that's who I was. And now I know I never communicate kind of frustration or anger or disappointment on email. Email is not for feelings. Email is for facts. Mm, I love that. So when you talk about growth and business, so like give me an example of how, what were you doing before you had this, this sort of, I guess, breakthrough, if you will, and then, and then after? Um, at the age of 23, we're probably doing... 20 million in revenue, 25 million in revenue as a company. So it, it was growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, it's grown, it's, it's grown significantly. And I've gotten involved in a lot of other stuff as well. So you managed to uh, scale your company, um, was it 40 million to over 100 million in two years? We went from probably the quickest jump over four years. We went from fifty to like two eighty. Wow, that's incredible. Seventy-five to two eighty. Seventy-five to two eighty over four years. Wait, Seventy-five million to to two hundred eighty million dollars in four years. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane we, growth. I mean, it's incredible. And this, and you attribute that to you confronting your your fears and your in your in your guilt and your shame no I, I no i don't attribute no i, I don't attribute it to that because those okay. things are there, there's a lot of things that have to come together there was a okay. lot of industry stuff that came together i'm not going to sit here we have an amazing team at the company there was a, yeah. a lot of factors that happened but any mm-hmm. one of those factors being removed can get in the way in this case i had certain blockages to it if i was not able to sit around a meeting and talk to people and communicate effectively, if my only way of communicating disappointment was through a really angry three in the morning email, the company would not have grown. But it's mm. not that once I figured that out, then, oh, boom, 300 million in business. That's it's a not good thing you let go of your business partner as well. How much, you, oh, well, you're not going to say how much you bought him <laughs> out for, right? Um, but, but let's just put it this way. It was probably a very good investment, right? I'm assuming today. Well, for listen, for both, it would right. not have... Right, it would not have it would not have grown without it, and thankfully today he's he's doing well, and it's a beautiful family and uh, a nice business, and uh, we're we're fairly close. And you got involved in a in a company called Mic Drop, or it's a uh, organization called Mic Drop. Yeah, so yeah. Let, let me talk to you about that. I mean, it all kind of connects really well, and you know the way these these things come together. So, as I started sharing my story outside of the company. And I started talking about when I eventually had this interaction with this fellow, I I saw two things. I said, one, um, I want to help this organization, which helped me. And I kind of had this feeling like I want every single person who's abused should have this interaction, be able to sit down with their abuser. Like I I really wanted to give this to more people. And this organization, which helped me get it, I was so appreciative of it. I said, how can I help you guys? And they were a fairly controversial organization, publicly exposing abusers, and is it a good thing, is it a bad thing? And, I, you know, all of that stuff was, was out there. And mm-hmm. I just told them, listen, I really want to help, and I want to help. I want to help people who've, who've experienced this. Separate and apart from that, I, I, I had this fear of public speaking that, um, you know, I mentioned I, w- I would go to meetings this even in meetings, right, recovery meetings with 10, 12, 15 people, mm-hmm. every single time I opened my mouth and shared, my heart would race. Wow. It was just so difficult yeah. for me. So getting up in front of my company was not an option. As we started getting 70, 80, 100 employees, I would talk through people. I could not talk in front of the company. And it started frustrating me. So I said, I got to do something about this. And I was reading books on public speaking. I was speaking to different people about it, watching some online videos. And there were a bunch of different tips, right? Imagine the audience naked. Um, you know, drink only one <laughs> shot of alcohol, so you're still kind of lucid, but you're a little bit loose. <laughs> yeah. So these kind of ideas. And uh, one day I, um, I had this, this local news reporter in Miami. His name was Roshlow. He had covered a break-in. We're in the electronics business, so, you know, high-value stuff. And we once had a break-in at the office. We had really good video footage. And this local news reporter was nice enough to cover the story. So after that, I had some interaction with him, and I reached out to him um, 
one day and I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting involved with this organization. I'd love to see if you can help me. So he said, great, let's grab, let's grab, uh, let's grab dinner. So we sat at dinner. I was hoping he would, um, I was hoping he would cover some news stories on it and bring exposure to the organization. And instead he said, Ellie, I'm hearing this and I'd love to help you share your story. So what do you mean? So he said, I think, you ha- I think the way you're going to make a change is getting up on a stage, inviting an audience, mm-hmm. and sharing your story and sharing how this organization impacted you and sharing, how, uh, sharing what it's done for you. There are so many questions around this. People want to know, why do I have to deal with uh, an issue that happened 20 years ago to someone? People want to know, mm-hmm. why should you destroy someone who, who, who abused? Why do they have to end up being publicly exposed and shamed and everything else? People have a lot of questions. So mm-hmm. get up and share your story. It'll be very powerful. So I told him, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to speak. I can't speak in front of 10, 12 people. He said, I'll help you. And um, the process that he helped me with was really getting me in touch with why I, why I must speak. And the reason I must speak was to share this specific message. And there was a part of that message that only I can share. So there are certain things that very few people were, bene- benef- were um, benefited from this organization in the way I did. Very few people had that healing interaction with their abuser. Very few, only I can share my story. He said, get up, Ellie, share your story. You'll move mountains. And um, when I saw the power of sharing sharing my story, A, how effective it was in terms of changing the narrative around the organization and around this conversation. And I cannot tell you how many messages I've gotten people who I didn't realize how the abuse was affecting me. I've been bearing it for so long. I realized I got to check into rehab for my own addiction or, Mm -hmm. you know, so many different messages I got from people. Uh, another person saying, you know, my son has been doing all sorts of weird stuff and I heard your story and I realized that he must be abused. And I confronted him about it and I asked him, and I confronted him, but I asked him about it and he opened up and now, you know, now we have this secret out in the open and we know what we have to deal with as, mm-hmm. as a family. And just so many messages like this, I said, wow, it's so powerful that I shared my story. So I called Rosh Lowe one day and Who's I said, Rosh Lowe? Rosh Lowe is the, the news reporter who oh, the news uh, reporter. covered the break-in a long time ago, uh, many years ago when I had a break in the office and who eventually taught me to share my story. Right. And I called him and Rosh took a very different approach. Like I said, he focused on instead of the fears and how to get over the fears and how much alcohol to have or how many people <laughs> to imagine in the room or mm-hmm. what they're wearing. He just said, focus on why you want to talk. And the passion itself is going to get you, by, get you past the, the fear. Not that the fear will disappear, but it's going to be stronger than the fear. And you'll get up there and feel the fear and you'll do it anyway. So, mm. I said, Rosh, I'd love you to come to my company. I saw the benefits for me personally. I'm much happier. I'm much more communicative. I'm a better boss. I, I, I want you to come out and do a workshop for our company. And we did an event and a workshop, which we called um, at the time a, uh, a like, kind of like a Toastmasters competition or something like yeah. that, and a public speaking competition. We rented a theater um, in Aventura, not far from my office, a beautiful theater. And 12, 13 of us got up on stage, many of us for the first time speaking in public. I think all but one had never spoken in public. Wow. Uh, Rosh helped them get past their fear and uh, uh, just opened up about their own stories and who they were. And some were more intense, some were less intense, but shared beautiful messages with the audience. And it connected the company um, in a way that um, nothing we've done before or after has had the same effect. And it gave people a really, really valuable skill. It made managers better managers. It made leaders better leaders. And it made people much more confident to be able to get up on stage and share their message. And what Rosh loves to say is that when you stand up in an, when you stand up in front of a theater and everyone's quiet and you're talking, you really get the message that you matter. And you do. You, you, you matter mm-hmm. before you got that message, but you really right. get it when you yeah. deliver that message. And then when you start getting messages from people, which if you share your real story, you, there's so many variations of stories that exist. There aren't six mm-hmm. billion variations, right? There's... <laughs> Six so when someone starts, right, I mean, there are, there are elements of it that, yeah, each yeah. one is unique. But when we talk about, if I talk about abuse, if I talk about poverty, if I talk about mental illness, if I talk about um, divorce, right, a lot of people have experienced the same thing. And if I can be honest about my experience through that, people can connect in such a beautiful way. And that's what happened. People would share their story and it's like, wow, I'm able to relate to you better. I'm able to understand you better. And it's to help people. So I started bringing it once a year to my company. 
Go ahead, you want to ask something. No, I wanted to just make a point that's really, I think, really important that we kind of kind of just went over, but it's just so crucial to highlight. And that is that your your initial uh, meeting with, with Rush was just to get exposure, but for the cause. You just wanted PR. Like everybody's talking about PR, PR, getting PR. But what he said to you, his advice was such gold. It's not enough to get PR nowadays. People don't really care about, you know, when they see a story in the papers. Or it's all about the person behind the story. If they can't see the person behind the story, it doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't connect to them on an emotional level. They can't relate to, to, to the cause without the person. They can't you know, relate uh, to the cause without the person, and the person is absolutely keen. And the problem is, is the reason why people hide behind PR is because they're scared to get up and talk about it themselves. They just there's that fear. What you did was incredible that you were able to just get on stage and now you're able to get on podcast shows and really talk about your story because I promise you, if you had it in a print or or you just you know just had it out there, it wouldn't. There was there's it's light and day completely I, I should be clear also about mm -hmm. um how rush trained me for that so originally when i said okay great i'll come i'll prepare a speech i'll come over to your home in a few days and i'll deliver it to you and what i said was in the speech was hey you know from the ages of eight to ten i was abused by a family friend mm -hmm. and the statistics on abuse are this and this yeah. is what this person says and this book says this and rush is like <laughs> cut the crap man <laughs> cut the crap, what are you telling yeah. me you, you want to read a book? Pass out a book. Yeah. Say, <laughs> I say, love it. Say what, only, say what only you can say. Say your story. Say what only you can say. Bring mm. them in. Bring that into the room. Talk about yes! the rocks. Talk, talk about the bars. Talk about your mother's comment. Talk about how it felt like shit. Talk about it. Talk about it because then they'll understand. Then they'll understand. Talk. Bring them into that meeting, that meeting sitting on the couch and watching the guy melt and watching the guy hyperventilate. Yes. Bring them into that place because then they'll understand the evolution of you how know you got there and why it's so important. You know what's amazing, Ellie, is that you're such a great storyteller. Like everyone listening to this, okay, we're listening to your story where literally like, I could feel it. I could feel people like just holding on to the words, right? That's what a beautiful storyteller is able to do, is able to captivate people to the point where we're literally holding on to your words. And what's amazing is that this wasn't natural for you. You struggled with this. You weren't able to do this before, right? It, storytellers are not born. They're made. And that's, what, well, that's what's incredible what about this. What I'm doing today was not possible before I met Rashlo. It was not even in the realm of possibilities. It was, you know, dunk a 13-foot basketball. Amazing. Oh, I just can't do that. We we we've hit the hour, Ellie, and I I literally we can talk for another hour. I kid you not. We we may maybe we will do a part two of this. But for right now, um, you know, there's people listening to this, and I want to be able to give them something practical that they can really take away because this was an incredibly inspiring. I I, I took a lot from it. Um, but how can someone listening to this now who they, w they have a message burning inside and they want to be able to speak and they want to be able to communicate and they want to be able to get on stage, uh, they want to be able to do a Facebook Live or, or a YouTube channel without feeling, you know, uh, scared. What, what's the next step? What can they do practically to, to start, you know, speaking publicly and being able to tell a story in, in a way that's going to really captivate an audience? Yeah, so what, what we didn't talk about is kind of where it evolved with Rush. And where it evolved with Rush is after I brought him to my company for the third time, I called him up and said, you got a gift, man. You got an absolute gift, and you're wasting away as a news reporter. You talk about me sharing my story and being the only <laughs> I have to share my personal story. You got to share this personal gift with the world. And I said, I'll help you do that. I'll okay. help you do that. Let's create, a, uh, let's create a business. And three months ago, no, uh, uh, four months ago, in November <laughs> of 2018, Rush left um, his news reporting job that he was held for 20 years, and we started a business called Mic Drop. And today he's out there um, training um, nonprofits, business owners, corporate team building. We have uh, we're, we're with the U.S. military. We're doing a program, just amazing, wow. amazing stuff. Because the skill, um, the skill goes through all sorts of. We did a workshop a few weeks ago in one of the largest financial institutions in the country, and then afterwards took the same training program to teenagers, literally the same training program Amazing. to teenagers, because this skill um, works ageless. anywhere. It's yeah. ageless. And 
ageless and timeless. And a lot of the stuff he teaches are stuff uh, from Aristotle. So what I asked him to put together for this and for people who are listening is kind of to share that initially what he shared with me and how in, in order to overcome all of this stuff, we really have to connect to what it is we're passionate about. And for those meetings from Rosh, Rosh really lit my fire to say, I got to stand up and share my story in front of people because I'm so passionate about helping this organization. I'm so passionate about giving the opportunity for other victims of abuse to know that they can heal, mm-hmm. that I must speak out. And then the fear kind of became in the background. I don't want to say it disappeared. It went into the background. So I asked Raj to put together a few-part video series um, just you know for free so people get a taste of what it is to kind of introduce yourself to this to the concept of storytelling, to the concept of communicating in a way that's not focused on getting up, up, uh, getting over the fear, but in a way that really dials in the message that you matter. Every single person is such a beautiful message. We've taken people who are afraid of public speaking, and they've captivated the audience for, for 15, 20 minutes. The audience is hanging on at the end of their chair to hear this person's story, this person who mm-hmm. said they can never speak. And I firmly believe that tucked inside of every single person is a riveting story. Perhaps not everyone is a public speaker that can give a thousand speeches and rivet audiences, but there's one in every single person. And, and that's, you know, that's what I asked Raj to put together for this is mm-hmm. put together a video series that we can give out to the, these listeners, Amazing. just connecting people to their, their passion. So where put a little they, page together. Yeah, where can um, they get that? It's micdrop.one, O-N-E, micdrop.com was taken. If anyone has a contact at Major League Baseball, <laughs> we want it. Okay, so mic drop is M-I-C, M-I-C drop dot one, as in O-N-E. O-N-E, slash giveaway. Slash giveaway. Yeah, and just be this, uh, the same thing he taught me and kind of talking about the, uh, the, our initial meetings together. They're going to get a series of of mini videos on on how to get started in, in, uh, in getting their message out and public speaking. Uh, Again, so that is uh, mic drop dot one forward slash giveaway i urge every single person listening to this to 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 grab that i mean it's a it's it's ellie i mean you're you're like proof right you're like living proof uh going from this this shy guy who's you know petrified of speaking to literally you know standing ovations um your your story is absolutely incredibly inspiring um I'm honored, honestly, and blessed to have you um, as a client and, and to work with you and to get your message out there as well. Um, I really, really appreciate it. How can people also connect with you if they want to just reach out? I have, I guess, fairly active Facebook and Instagram pages. Okay. Um, E-L-I-N-A-S-H on Facebook. And Instagram is Eliyahu, which is my full name, E-L-I-Y-A-H-U underscore Nash. On Instagram, it's open, follow, and um, see what's Sweet. up. Amazing. As well as Mike Drop. Mike Drop has a fairly active Instagram page as well and Facebook. So check us out Incredible. there and what we're doing. We share a lot of beautiful stories um, on our YouTube channel. It's it's really cool and I'm really inspired. You know, I'm, I'm the best testimonial in the world, right? The client <laughs> turned investor. So. Incredible. Ali, thank you so much for letting me pick thank your you. brain. And uh, thank you to all my fellow brain pickers. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.